Welcome to The Fundamentals, a podcast focused on the incredible research and researchers here at Michigan Medicine. I'm your host, Kelly Malcolm. And I'm Jordan Gobig, and I am very excited about this week's episode. Our guest has such a prolific research career at Michigan, and I feel like I learned so much about the direction of where research is heading. Spoiler alert, lots of really cool things happening to make research a more efficient and inclusive place. Yes, I was encouraged by this interview as well. The way people do research has come a long way and can go even further still. In this week's article, I found a Kelly Malcolm original about how an atlas of neuronal circuits could help predict targets for medications to control appetite. Given our guests' decades-long research portfolio in childhood obesity, I thought this was a fitting piece to highlight. And speaking of appetite, a study I found Interesting, centered on research in fruit flies, which found that the feeling of hunger itself may slow aging. As usual, we'll provide links to the full articles and info about our featured guest in the show notes. Now let's get on to our guest. Today's guest is Dr. Julie Lumeng, the Associate Dean for Research at the University of Michigan Medical School, Executive Director of the Michigan Institute for Clinical and Health Research, and the Associate Vice President for Clinical and Human Subjects Research for the university. She is also a professor in the Departments of Pediatrics and Nutritional Sciences, providing leadership on the strategic vision of the medical school's Office of Research, as well as running her own research lab focused on applying emerging science in child development and behavior to the prevention and treatment of childhood obesity. Welcome, Dr. Lomang. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, welcome to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to learning more about your work. Um, So let's dive right in and get down to it. Um, I'd love to hear more about what led you down this path to studying childhood obesity in your lab. Yeah, great question. I think as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that we're all a product of our times. And um, childhood obesity was the epidemic that everyone was really focused on. It was what parents and people in the community were most concerned about back when I was a young researcher. And so I was training in pediatrics, and it was sort of in the zeitgeist that everyone was really worried about childhood obesity, sort of like the emphasis now on children's exposure to like digital media and iPads and um, gun violence is so prominent now. So that was why. And then I think also I was seeing a lot of kids in clinic as a pediatrician in training who were struggling with obesity. And when I was a kid growing up, there was obesity in my family and there's still obesity in my family. So it was just familiar to me as an issue. And I think I had empathy for it. So that was why really. Yeah. I mean, it was a hot issue at the time, but it is a really important issue and still one that many families are facing. So it's much appreciated that you do have this longevity in this field. Um, So we are the fundamentals. Um, A lot of times I ask individuals to define a term or a concept, but I thought it might be important to focus on common misconceptions about childhood obesity instead and how your research has contributed to knowledge on that subject. So, you know, in medicine, it's a well-known issue that when medicine doesn't understand something, we tend to blame it on personal responsibility 
Or when it's a childhood issue, we blame it on the parents, and we consider it to be a result of bad parenting. And I think that childhood obesity 20 years ago was really falling victim to that, that there was a big emphasis that if only we could teach parents, and you know, it generally was mothers, if only we could teach mothers how to parent better around childhood obesity, then children would not be obese. And it's just, it wasn't true then, and it's not true now. And I think what um, researchers have really come to appreciate over the last 20 years is that there it's just biology. There is so much biology. And yes, of course, um, our food environment has changed. That is absolutely true. But it's like a biology and environment interaction because if it was all the food environment, everyone would be obese, but everyone is not obese. And so um, if you have the right biology and you live in today's environment, um, that combination is going to put you really at risk. And so you know, my research program, we initially started out thinking a lot about um, children's behavior and the idea that, um, you know, sometimes people think of children as a blank slate and that the way children turn out is all a direct result of how they were parented. But, you know, children come with their own profile. And I think just like kids have their own temperament and personality, they really also have their own eating behaviors. And, you know, as a parent, you get what you get, and you parent around, you know, is your child a picky eater? Are they a voracious eater? And so we were spending a lot of time thinking about that. And I think as I've uh, grown as a researcher over time and had more collaborations, I've been thinking a lot more about the biology behind all of it. And so we've been thinking about like stress hormones and like oxytocin, the bonding hormone, and how does that all relate to eating behavior and obesity? Yeah, and so I know that I said a lot of different titles in your intro. <laughs> um, and I'm so impressed by you. And I wonder what it's like transferring some of your skills as a researcher to administrative roles. And what what role has your work as a researcher um, played in you now holding these leadership roles in research at the medical school? So when I first... Uh, started in my career as a young person, I was a pediatrician. And, you know, I kind of came from a family background that you went to college to have a trade. <laughs> and my trade was going to be becoming a physician. And, it, you know, I went through all my clinical training. And then becoming a researcher was just nowhere on my radar screen. Like, no one in my family had a PhD. No one in my family had an MD either, but that just seemed more accessible. And so um, once I finished my clinical training, I was exposed to research and I just really, really loved it. It was one of these things that I found myself like jumping out of bed in the morning to go to work. Like I enjoyed being a clinician, but I think I really recognized that research was really what I was most excited about. All that being said, I think that um, my clinical training is like fundamental to the kind of researcher I am. And I think it's fundamental to being a, an administrator. And I don't want to wax too philosophical about it, but people often have reflected that, you know, being a physician is probably the only profession where it is just accepted that like you can walk into a room and within three minutes start asking people their most personal and intimate questions. and. Physicians are trusted to do that. And I think that um, part of being a physician is that you learn to build rapport with people really quickly. And I think that 
because you hear so much about people's really most personal issues, I think you just develop a lot of empathy for people and like understanding that like everyone's walking into the room with their own perspective and their own background. And I guess I think, again, not to wax too philosophical, but Go ahead. I think like the most fundamental part of being an administrator is to be able to see the different perspectives in the room and have empathy for all of them and understand that, you know, when there are two different opinions at the table, you know, there are multiple ways to try to solve that issue, but you're probably not going to change people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you just have to figure out how to make this work to help everyone move forward together. So I've been at the University of Michigan since 1991 when I came here as an undergrad. I left for a few years but then came right back. You know, I've worked as a physician in the healthcare system and I've been a student here. I've been a trainee here and then I've been a researcher who's worked with people at the medical school and on central campus. And so I've had exposure to sort of all those perspectives. And I guess I just, I think all those people, they're really awesome people. Like the physicians are amazing people who I have so much respect for what they do and how passionate they are about what they do. And the researchers on central campus and at the medical school, they're amazing. Like we're so lucky to have them. And so I think in order to be an effective administrator, you really have to like the people that you're advocating for. And I just really genuinely like all these people. So <laughs> I'll stop digressing on that. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I mean, we've we've really enjoyed everyone that we've spoken to so far on the podcast. So we definitely concur with you there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So recently, the Michigan Institute for Clinical and Health Research, which we call MISHAR, was awarded a large grant from the NIH's Clinical and Translational Science Awards Program. Um, Can you explain for our listeners what that means? So it's the CTSA, what CTSAs are, and why U of M's participation in this program is so important. Yes, and so the CTSA program was started by the National Institutes of Health back in 2006. And it was started back then because, um, appropriately, members of the public were frustrated that um, their taxpayer dollars at NIH were not being translated into things that they were seeing an impact in the community or with new medications or devices or that sort of thing. And so the NIH said, okay, we're going to invest resources in helping these academic medical centers and universities around the nation really build up their infrastructure in order to be able to do clinical and translational research more efficiently. So. Um, We're lucky because the University of Michigan was one of the 60 institutions around the nation that was chosen back at that time to be a part of this program around the nation. And we're all very networked and we work together and communicate with our peer institutions around the nation. And we've been renewed um, ever since then because it goes in five year cycles. Um, So most recently, however, um, the NIH said, okay, for the last 15, 20 years, uh, we have been investing in building up this infrastructure around the nation. We think the infrastructure has really been nicely built up now. Now we want you 60 institutions, we want you to try to study like it's a research topic, like the science of science. Like now that you have this infrastructure, what are the most important components of that infrastructure that make research happen more efficiently, with higher quality, with more innovation, faster. And you know, one of the things we often cite is that it takes like 10 to 15 years for a drug to make it from like 
working in the lab with molecules to bringing it to market. And of all of those drugs, only 5% of them actually make it all the way to market. And it costs billions of dollars. And the question is, you know, can we use our research skills as researchers studying diabetes or heart disease or whatnot to actually research that process? Like, is there a way to make that process more efficient and go faster so that we can um, find either cures or strategies for prevention more efficiently? As you dive into like the, the process of research, um, do you have any examples of how research has changed over the past couple of decades that you've seen and maybe even a reflection on you know where you're hoping that it could go? Yeah, um, so I think a few ways that it's changed. Over, it's changed a lot, number one, but um, a few ways that it's changed. First of all, there are, um, I think everyone would agree, there are a lot more regulations around research than there used to be. And, you know, people see it from both sides, but I think it's appropriate. The purpose of the regulations is to make sure that it's done correctly and appropriately and that we get the best and highest quality data and that any um, people who are participating in it are having a really good experience participating. Um, so the regulations have become um, greater. I think the other thing that is interesting that's really um, grown a lot even in the last five years is the expectation for transparency. And so um, the NIH has been mandating this and researchers themselves have been coming forth sort of voluntarily to do this. The issue is, um, you know, decades ago there would be problems that um, you know, you would do a study, and if it didn't have interesting results, it wouldn't get published. But then, unfortunately, probably 10 other researchers would do the same study and not get interesting results and not publish it. And that's just a waste of resources. And it's an example of, you know, if we could do that better, we'd probably get the science done faster instead of research going into a black hole. So there's been an emphasis on transparency and um, making sure that uh, data and results are made available to other researchers and the public more easily. I think there's that. I think another thing that's changed a lot recently is um, social media and Twitter. You know, it used to be that um, researchers would learn about other research topics by reading medical journals or research journals. And now the biggest predictor of how frequently a new research finding will get cited and built upon is how much it was tweeted. And so scientists are really um, communicating a lot on Twitter, and so social media is important. And then the last thing I would say is that, because um, I think it's non-ignorable, is that uh, women and more diverse populations are now um, in the research workforce more. And if I think we're all aware that historically topics in women's health have gotten less funding. And I think that now that women are, are more frequently members of um, higher administration or you know, full professors at universities, I think topics that maybe women have lived experience in, maybe like feeding children, <laughs> like the topic <laughs> I study, I think that a lot of those topics have been neglected over the years. And now that women are doing that research, I think they're getting a lot more attention. And so the topics we study, I think, are evolving as well. This is exciting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. There's a lot of really cool, I mean, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but it mm -hmm. sounds like there's a lot of opportunities that we have the, the right people working on. So this yeah. is an exciting time to be a part of research. I agree. <laughs> I think the pandemic sort of made 
the scientific process a little bit more visible to the general public in a way that maybe it wasn't before. And I personally, as a science communicator, would love to see that continue. What do you think some of our researchers should do to make science more visible to the people that they're doing the work for? What are some of the steps they could take? So I think in some sense, social media is like the great equalizer because, you know, it gives everybody a platform to comment. I mean, we could argue, is that good or bad? (laughs) But I mean, I think there are a lot of um, people who on Twitter are have really gained a lot of prominence and have a really like valid, valuable perspective on things. And they gain a lot of followers. And, you know, I learn a lot from from people I follow on Twitter about different topics that I may otherwise not have had access to. But so I think, number one, um, in terms of uh, the studies when we design them, there is a big emphasis now, and it is correct and appropriate that And we never should have been doing it this way. Like historically, um, topics would be studied and the people who were living the topic (laughs) were not involved in the study. And and I want to be gentle when I say this, but in my own experience, it's um, like child feeding. Like the, the topic I study is, you know, how do infants eat? And when you look at that research literature dating back to like the 1930s, the researchers, they were men because the pediatricians who, they were men. And they made such important contributions and laid this like awesome foundation of research. And I think that, but that it, it was sort of a small research literature and there wasn't a whole lot there. And then it just sort of like, not a whole lot happened. And then you would see like in the 80s and 90s, we started to get more women in research and, you know, women who had breastfed, like they are going to have intimate knowledge of how do babies eat exactly? Like, what is the sucking like? Like, when do the babies slow down their sucking? Like, how can you interpret a hunger cry in a baby? Like, who better to research that? than a woman who has like had to feed a baby 24-7 for months. I think it's so important that when we're studying things that the people who live it, like whether it is, you know, something in like daily life, like feeding a child, or it's a disease process, like a condition that people have, I think, um, you know, there's no better person to be a part of the research team than someone who's actually um, experiencing the condition. So the NIH is emphasizing a lot right now and actually sometimes mandating that um, when you have a research study that you have a, uh, I mean, what they might refer to as a community member, as a full member of the research team, not just someone that's consulting, but someone who's actually sitting in with the team on the standing meetings and contributing to the design and the interpretation and all of that. So um, maybe I should mention that because that's so important, one of the things that um, MISHAR, the Michigan Institute for Clinical and Health Research, is doing going forward in the next seven years is we're launching a program um, that's called Patients as Partners, where we're collaborating with someone named Greg Merritt, who is this fabulous person who has been a patient here at Michigan Medicine. And he's um, transformed that experience into really advocating for patients being a part of the study team. And he's amazing if you ever listen to him talk. So we're partnering with him to think about how can you um, 
give patients or community members the training and skills necessary to make the most of that experience. So instead of just inviting a patient to be a member of a study team, we're going to partner with him to develop a program where perhaps it's like a half-day, you know, retreat sort of thing, where you invite patients to come together, and then we basically discuss for the afternoon, like, how can you make the most of your experience on a research team and really contribute? I think that's probably the first step is to have the people who are going to be most impacted, involved in the study from the beginning. But how do we also just make make sure that everyone gets access to the fruits of the research process? Yeah. And so this is really important to talk about as well, because, you know, we think about research, like the science of research or the science of science in uh, stages of translation. And so we think about like five different stages and the earliest stage is like really like molecules and then the latest stage which we refer to as like t4 t5 depending on who you talk to um is really how do you get um like if there's been a drug that's been discovered to be really effective how do you get that out in out to into the hands of patients and Part of that is ensuring that physicians are prescribing it, are aware of the drug and how to use it and um, how to prescribe it. And then also um, in the public, how to get the public to take up an intervention. Um, And that might be like um, an obesity prevention strategy or something like that. And so I think, um, you know, kind of circling back to what I was saying before, the public over the last 30 years really appropriately has advocated to NIH to say, You know, our taxpayer dollars are going into research, and we want to see that not only are there these new basic science discoveries, but that those get translated into applied interventions that we can see have an impact in the community. And so one of the things that MISHAR, the CTSA program, is um, tasked with doing is how do we make that happen more effectively? So we're partnering with um, some people at the university. Amy Kilborn, for example, is one of our experts here in implementation science. And implementation science is this whole field of the science of how do you get these discoveries implemented. Um, so there are quite a few people here who are researching that, and um, we'll be partnering with them to see how we can do it better. I feel like we've talked a lot about some specific projects that you have going on at Mishar. Um, are there any other ones that you know maybe you're personally pursuing in your lab that I, I would love to hear about it? I'm very um, I think that I've probably talked about my kid uh, throughout this podcast more than anything, um, you know, proud new-ish mom. Um, but I, I would love to just hear more about, you know, your research, if you have any specific projects through your lab, through the med school, continue to plug Mishar because it sounds like you've got some amazing things there, but anything you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so I guess two things. One, um, so there's one other Mishar program that I think it's really worth highlighting, and then I can talk a little bit about my research as well. But um, so we're starting this new program with Susan Murphy, who's one of our um, professors here in uh, physical medicine and rehab. So this program, it's called the Behavioral Research Innovation and Support Program. And the premise of this is that historically, the CTSA program was really um focused a lot on drug and device research, which is great because, you know, someday if I have a disease, I want there to be a drug that I can use. So we will continue to do that, and it is so important. It's also true that there are um, 
a lot of things in people's well-being and community health that are related to behavior. And so um, historically, there's been a less emphasis, I would say, both um, at universities and at the NIH on behavioral research and um, sort of helping those researchers bring um, the same innovation and rigor and quality to their work that some of the drug and device trials have. And so Susan has actually been a national leader in that space. She's sat on NIH committees and helped the NIH develop a lot of their tools for that. And so we're so lucky to have her here. So she's going to be leading our work in um, that space. And I should say that of the... um, the trials that our faculty here at the University of Michigan propose on their own, the ones that they create, um, half of them are behavioral. So they're not all drug and device. And so because half of them are, and um, according to the uh, federal data of all of the behavioral trials in the state of Michigan, the University of Michigan leads like 60 or 70% of them. So from that perspective, we felt that we really have a responsibility to do what we can to create an infrastructure to support that. Um, and so we'll be working on that for the next, uh, for the coming years. But going back to- But you're still finding time to do research <laughs> in your lab. <laughs> yeah, so um, the I'm really excited about this project that we're starting next. and. Um, I would say that, so, you know, I've studied uh, parenting behavior and child eating behavior from like a behavioral perspective. And we spent a lot of time interviewing moms and seeing like what their perspective is on feeding. And I've been doing that for a long time. And, but I also have training as a physician. And so I understand the physiology of like hunger cues and satiety cues and stomach emptying and glucose and all of this. And I I just got to a point where I thought, you know, I think I have an obligation to integrate that knowledge um, because there are probably not that many people in a position to be able to do that. And so, you know, I will. So this project that we're starting now, I'm pretty excited about. It's the so there's all there are a lot of different little studies out there that have been going on for 30 years that we just haven't integrated this into like one big study and so for example so there there's this classic study out there that shows that babies will learn to recognize a face more if they're shown that face while tasting something sweet And so I think it's fascinating, right? Because if Mother Nature were going to design a mechanism (laughs) for babies to recognize their mother's faces, you would make it, you know, that recognition be promoted by the baby being fed Mm -hmm. at the same time. So here's another little snippet is, um, so oxytocin, which I think we're all, you know, it's kind of in the um, public sphere, people have been talking about this a lot now, but oxytocin is like the bonding hormone. But oxytocin also is related to hunger and satiety. So the more oxytocin you have, the more it suppresses your appetite and makes you feel full. So um, the question is, a lot of times in the, public, you hear a lot that people are saying, don't mix food and love. Keep those two things separate. It's so important not to think of food as love. And the argument I'm making is, you know what, like in very early infancy, food and if we consider love to be like mother-child attachment, mother-child bonding, 
those two things are inextricably linked. Yeah. <laughs> You're, yes, exactly. <laughs> and you know what? I think this is coming full circle because I would say if you're a mom who has had the lived experience of feeding a baby for hours and hours, I think that idea that, you know, feeding a baby is not like changing a diaper. There's, it's not like a task. There's a whole lot of other like biology that I think goes on in a mother's brain. There, there's another really interesting study that shows that um, when a baby cries, um, for women in the first few months postpartum, the parts of their brain that light up are the parts of their brain on an fMRI that are uh, much more about emotion and much more sort of sort of similar to like obsessive compulsive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And if you do the father's brain, the part of the father's brain that lights up when a baby cries is just the practical problem solving part. Mm-hmm. And so like I often say that when my babies were really young, when they cried, like it really stressed me out. And I, my husband, who's also a pediatrician, you know, I knew that research literature and, you know, we would talk about it and we were able to self-reflect as a couple that it just didn't stress them out as much. And I think that it's biology. It's not that there was anything wrong with me. It was that the hormones in my brain were causing me to have that reaction to my baby crying. Which when you think about it once again, if Mother Nature were going to design something to make sure that babies survived, they're going to design it so that when mothers hear their baby cry, it elicits this big brain response that's like not ignorable to bring this sort of full circle. Like there are a lot of researchers who think that um, maybe one of the reasons that um, some children become develop obesity by the time they're two years old is that maybe mothers are using food too much to soothe a crying baby and that we need to create interventions to teach mothers not to use food to soothe a crying baby. And, you know, there are some fabulous researchers who are my colleagues in the research community who have done really important work that they have demonstrated that if you um, work with mothers to provide them like strategies for how to soothe the baby in a way that doesn't involve food, that that does change the growth pattern of the baby in a healthy way. The effect is really, really tiny, (laughs) in my opinion. And I I guess what I want to say is that it's great to give mothers alternative strategies for how to soothe a crying baby. Absolutely. But I will say that having had three babies myself, there were definitely many times that the only thing that would soothe my baby was feeding my baby. And, you know, when that would happen, like the question was, was my baby really hungry? Like, what does hunger even mean? Like, if if hunger is needing calories, I think that there were times that my babies were crying, like really vigorously to be fed. And I would think, I don't think you need calories right now. But there was nothing else that would soothe them. And so I would feed them. And like, you know, it's true that sweet taste releases opioids in the brain. And anyone who's ever breastfed, like you feed that baby and like all of a sudden they just calm like so dramatically. And if doing that 
promotes like mother-infant bonding. Like if the baby learns that when they cry to be fed, their mother responds and feeds them, and then that releases opioids in the baby's brain, and the sweet taste helps them recognize the mother's face more. Like, should we really intercept that and stop it to say, oh, don't want to promote childhood obesity, (laughs) so don't feed your baby. I just think we're walking in really dangerous territory unless we really understand that system. So that's the project we're starting now, Mm -hmm. and we'll be recruiting people, um, inviting mothers to participate uh, to help us understand how feeding and mother-infant bonding relate to each other. Yeah, no, this is wonderful. I'm excited, again, as a mom to read this. But I mean, it also just sounds like you're coming from this place of literally as a researcher wanting to give parents the best or better tools or more tools in their toolbox to feel good about what they're doing, which is the most, again, the most important thing. And I also would just feed my baby. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's It's the easiest thing to do, honestly. And I don't really feel like parents should feel guilty about wanting wanting to soothe their child um and i I feel like your research is really relevant and speaks to so many parents because they're always in this this state of i just want to do the the best thing for my child and i'm not really sure what to do because i get so many mixed messages and combining all of your research together to say, this is what we found, this is what's happening on a biological level, it might make it easier to make those decisions and feel less bad about them or l- less uncertain about them. So that's that's fantastic, I really. Yeah, I mean, I've even like, you know, I have a rising toddler, and so it's less about those like, she's not taking a bottle anymore, but as a working parent, my only time I spend with her is usually meal times. And so, like, it's, you're right, you know, I, I sometimes I get in my own head about, like, does she just associate the time I care for her with food? But at the same time, we have really, truly lovely meals together and, like, fun. And I'm not actually concerned, but I can get in my own head about it. But then I realize that it's just a really lovely time for my husband, myself, and I to bond with her. And it's, mealtime is important for us. We still sit around and she will go to her high chair by 5.30 if we haven't fed her <laughs> and sat down. She will let us know. So, and, and she's at, you know, we're having a good time. So. And I, I think the culture, and a lot of cultures around the world yeah. involve food as part of expressing love and showing kinship and all of that. And I saw a research study in JAMA that was talking about the longer you sit at the ta- longer a child sits at the table, the more... Veg- fruits and vegetables they eat or something for like for every 10 minutes <laughs> I could imagine yeah, yeah. yeah. period yeah. the more fruits and vegetables yeah. they eat so uh, I think it's really fascinating that whole interplay between your biology and your be- and your behavior and it's great that U of M is focusing you know what is it so half of their studies on behavioral research so um, I did want to ask you for our listeners who are researchers who might be approaching um, designing their study. Do you have any advice for researchers who are just now starting out in doing translational or clinical research? Well, I guess my biggest piece of advice is that um, to reach out for help and ask for help. And so Mishar is here to help the researchers and we have a lot of um, 
mentoring and training and support programs, but even for people who are already done with their training, like we all continue to need mentoring and support. And so I would, my number one piece of advice is reach out to Mishar um, and we can help you navigate the university system to get the support that you need. And we do also have contacts around the nation to help connect you to different um, resources. I guess um, outside of Mishar, I would always say um, you need to be comfortable uh, admitting what you don't know and um, being honest uh, when you need help and asking for it. Because, you know, I'll say like sitting in a lot of administration meetings all day long at the university, man, administrators really want to see our researchers succeed. And they think our researchers are really great people. And um, they're here to facilitate and to help and to make the research happen. And when I hear, you know, people even in the regulatory compliance space where their whole job is to make sure that things get done correctly according to the rules, it is like I'm so proud to work with them because when you hear them talk about our researchers, they like are allied with our researchers and like they are doing everything they can to like help that great work happen. And so um, maybe that's my other suggestion is that if you're a researcher and the people who are responsible for enforcing the rules reach out to you, you know, they're your partners. And so not to feel um, like it's a struggle that you, you know, you have to try to operate around these really frustrating rules, but to like partner with them to say, okay, great. I also want to have high quality research. How can we do this together? Because they're there to help. No, this has been such a great conversation on so many levels. Uh, Your work is fascinating. um, And just learning more about Mishar's support systems and everything um, that the CTSA is doing has just been like really great to learn about. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I came here in September. I only moved here a couple months ago. I actually just didn't generally know a lot about Mishar, so this has been really enlightening for me, even though I'm not a researcher. And I know Kelly touches their lives a bit more with her writing than I do, but um, as I, I get more involved with science Twitter, I've been spending more time talking to researchers, so I'm glad to have this resource that I can now like plug and feel like I know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming here this morning. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. The Fundamentals is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network and produced by the Michigan Medicine Department of Communication in partnership with the University of Michigan Medical School. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.